In the absence of our pastor this morning, we have the privilege of welcoming Keith Rohr to our uh, congregation this morning. Keith is the pastor of the Keystone Church, which is about a mile down the road, and uh, he's been there since 1993, so that's quite a time. And uh, Keith is uh, a very avid woodworker. I've seen some of his stuff he does. He's a very good woodworker, and uh, he rides bike also. But not to Orlando, he says. <laughs> and um, the love of his life is, is Betty, his wife, and he loves spending time with her. doesn't matter if it's on the boardwalk or at a sunset or wherever. But Keith has a passionate, unapologetic love for the church and the church universal, but the church in his community. And so it's with great pleasure that I welcome you, Keith, to our uh, congregation this morning. And please come share with us. And I would ask that uh, one of our ushers might find Keith a glass of water. If you could do that, it'd be great. Thanks so much, Chris. Good morning. Do you talk here? I like when people talk back. I had a brother that uh, used to uh, sit in the pew and go, preach it, brother. Preach it. Like, if God could have kept him here, but God took him home, I guess he's doing that now in heaven. Uh, but uh, he was from a, a good Baptist background, and he would say amen and preach it and all that kind of stuff that fires a pastor up. Well, it's so good to be with you this morning, and thanks to your worship team up here. I, I, I had some of those songs. I just wanted to raise my hands, but I hadn't checked with Tim about that, so I <laughs> just kept him down here. I told uh, Tim after he had asked me several months ago if I'd come, I said, this is about like coming home in some uh, ways because 32 years ago, I preached my very first sermon ever in this church on a Sunday night, and it went from like 7 till, I think, 10.30 or something like that. (laughs) I kid you not, I had 12 pages of ledger-sized paper, handwritten notes on it, and people would go out to go to the restroom, and then we'd never see them again. <laughs> I promise you, you'll be okay today. Uh, sorry, my wife, Betty, could not be here today. Uh, our daughter-in-law in North Carolina had open-heart surgery about a week and a half ago, and so we um, were down this week to help out with her little boy. She's not allowed to lift anything over five pounds for three months, and she has a one-year-old, so that's a problem. And so my wife, uh, I was there from Tuesday to yesterday, my wife stayed down till uh, this coming Wednesday, so could not be here. Well, uh, would you pray with me as we begin and ask God's blessing on the things uh, that we want to share? Father, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. Uh, we pray that you might be exalted and lifted up. The glory of the gospel might become sweeter and more um, delightful to us, perhaps, as we leave today and that we might come to see the implications or the effects of the gospel in greater and greater wonder. Uh, I pray that you would bind the enemy, that he'd have no power, no ability to um, kind of do his thing, and that instead you would do your thing for the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray uh, that I would be your spokesman. The things that you don't want me to say, you'd either uh, silence me or that we wouldn't remember them, and those things that you desperately need me to say. Um, would come to my mind. I pray that Jesus would be lifted up and much would be made of him. And in his name we pray. Amen. You can find Matthew chapter 25, 
if you have a Bible with you, <clears throat> beginning of verse 31 through 46 will be our text this morning. The title of my message is, Knowing Him Means Loving or Helping Them. Knowing Him Means Helping Them. If you're trying to think of a place to spend uh, vacation time, probably one of the places that's not going to be on your um, uh, short list is uh, Libya. Libya is in North Africa, hot desert place, and it has been a place of disaster in the wake of Gaddafi's fall in 2011. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, uh, you've got three different governments trying to kind of compete with each other. You have two parliaments that are rivals to one another. Um, anarchy reigns supreme. It's said that some 1,700 um, militant groups are operating in that country. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, successful economy. This is not a place where you want to go if you want to uh, serve in the tech industry. Uh, but it's a great place to smuggle people. Um, in the wake of the Arab Spring through much of the Middle East in 2011, um, people are fleeing, uh, either trying to f- move somewhere else to find jobs or fleeing the Middle East or, North, or Africa. And it's said that one tribe alone in Libya makes $60,000 a week after expenses smuggling people over to Europe across the Mediterranean. And you may have just seen in the news a couple weeks ago, again, another boat capsized on the way there with uh, far too many dead. It's not a great place. And yet the oil and gas industry is still uh, surging there, a lot of natural resources when it comes to petroleum products in Libya. And so people in the Middle East who can't find work in their own countries, are moving to Libya, despite the dangers that are there. And that was the case with one young Egyptian dad and husband several years ago said goodbye to his, uh, his wife and his children, he kissed them, and, and his final words to his wife were, if I don't make it back, teach my children the principles of Jesus Christ. If I don't make it back, teach my children the principles of Jesus Christ. What are the principles of Jesus Christ? Thanks, brother. There's a lot of things that we could talk about. We look at the New Testament, and we see all that Jesus taught, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But what are those kind of core, what are the core issues that we stand for as a Christian church that matter to us, that we hang our hats on, that we beat the drum about over and over and over and over and over and over again? And this morning I want to talk to you about the gospel and its implications. And first we're going to read this passage in Matthew chapter 25. I'll just warn you, I preached this about a month ago at our church, preached this passage in a series on hell and heaven. And God just kind of wrecked me. And so I apologize if he does that to you as well this morning. Jesus says these words, beginning of verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, Jesus most often referred to himself by this designation, Son of Man. So he's talking about himself. He will sit on his glorious throne. So he's talking about the second coming when he comes back. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, he's a picture here of the final judgment. And he's separating people who are for God and people who are against God. People who are going to be redeemed by God and those who are not. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, 
take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me, uh, thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the Word of God. And I don't know about you, but when I read a passage like this, I start to break out and sweat and rub my hands together and say, what in the world is Jesus saying? Is this a, a gospel of works righteousness that if we do enough of the right kinds of things for enough of the right kinds of people that we're okay? And conversely, if we fail to do enough of the right kinds of things for the right kinds of people that we are judged? And really, there's nothing in here. Jesus doesn't have anything to say about pristine doctrine. He doesn't have anything to say about avoiding the bad kinds of things that we know about to avoid he simply says that you will be redeemed if this has been true of you, and conversely, you will be judged if this has not been true of you. Is this indeed a gospel where we're saved by works? And what about the gospel of Jesus died and rose again to save sinners? We're going to come back to try to answer that question First of all, I want to lay a little bit of groundwork. And so if you want to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 1. Now we are kind of a, a crazy about the gospel at Keystone, and so this ends up in our sermons, in our teaching, uh, a, a great deal. Well, one of the things that I've learned over the years as a pastor is that it doesn't matter if we've gone to church for a very long time, the gospel still needs to be driven home to us again and again and again, and that's true for me as a pastor and preacher. I would say I was a pastor for probably 10 years before the reality of the gospel really hit home, despite the fact that I have two theological degrees and was preaching for all of those years. So here is the gospel. Jesus, or 
Paul says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. So we are about to get the essence of the gospel. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. And so he's speaking here about the possibility of people who have made professions of faith, but who do not possess Jesus Christ. Perhaps they've been to church all their lives, they've heard all of the right things, and they have said maybe some good things, but the possibility is that they are in the end lost. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. My friends, that is the good news. Period. Jesus Christ came to this earth, became a human being, became like us, lived a sinless, perfect life. Not once did He displease His Father. And then even though the Bible says that we die because we are sinners, Jesus went and died, but He was no sinner. But nevertheless, because He died, He could die in the place of sinners like me. His death could pay as a substitute penalty for what should have been rightfully mine and yours. Judgment of God. So the Gospel is what Jesus did. Period. The good news is what Jesus did. Dead, buried, resurrected. Now you might be asking, well, what about what it is we do? Well, the Bible tells us what we have to do, right? Jesus, or Paul says in Acts 20, 21, I preach, whether it's Jewish congregations, Gentile people, I preach the same message to everyone, that we must turn to God in repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. But that's our response to the gospel. That's not the gospel. The good news is what he did. And we get to respond. Respond to that. That is the true gospel. Now the fact of the matter is, from the time of the apostles up until today, there has been a multitude of false gospels making their ways around not only communities, but even in churches. And of course, one of them we see very early in the New Testament is a works righteousness gospel, where people are trying to do things to be approved by God so that God can... One day, they can one day stand before God and and say, I did this, and I did this, and I didn't do this. I was sure I didn't, made sure I didn't do this. And expecting that God will go, great job. And He never will. You see, this was the problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. The Pharisees were always in Jesus' crosshairs, and you would think, listen, if you and I would have been alive in Jesus' day, we'd have been looking at these people in our community and saying about them, man, these are the men and women that are going to get to heaven. These are the people that God is going to commend. They do it just right. They make sure they don't do all these bad things. They make sure they do these good things. Do you remember how Jesus talked about it? He put one of them at a wall at the temple and a tax collector nearby at that same wall. And the tax collector is saying, I thank God that I'm not like these other guys that do this and this and this and fail to do this and this and this. After all, I I fast all the time. I give my tithes and offerings and I don't do this. And I I thank you especially that I'm not like that tax collector over there. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth in Jesus' day. 
And yet the tax collector, with all of his sins, is crying out to the God, God to, the, to the Lord, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the man who said that, the filthy tax collector, went home justified and the Pharisee did not. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved. That's the gospel, is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God doesn't want us to be able to stand before him one day and point to this, that, and the other thing and say, I get your approval because of this. And the early church wrestled with this. Most of the book of Galatians is about this. Paul's fighting this, this temptation for people to run back to the law and keep the law and try to do all the right things so that they can be approved by God. And Paul says, to, uh, Galatians 2.16, by works of righteous, no one's going to be justified. You just can't do it. You keep the law, you try to do this and not do this and be accepted by God, it's not going to happen. God's not going to let you make of yourself your own Savior. False gospel, works righteousness. I don't know if any of you have read this book. Really good for you to do so if you are a Christian. It's called Almost Christian. Uh, it's 2010, I think. Kenda Creasy Dean is a professor at Princeton University. What the faith of our teenagers is telling the American church. This is a study started by a couple of professors at Notre Dame in 2003. It continued up to last year. It's called the National Study on Religion and Youth. The results of the study were devastating to the people who started the study. Now, most of the people involved were not folks that we would kind of consider evangelical, Roman Catholics, a mainline Protestant denomination people. And yet it's really intriguing that the conclusions that they come up with really sound like evangelical concerns. They actually came up for, uh, a, a, with a name for the religion that they say so many of our young people, yes, including in evangelical churches, the religion that our young people are paying lip service and life service to. They said there's a, like a whole new religion has been established by the people that are coming up through our church programs, through our youth groups and our Sunday schools, and yes, even our, our Christian homes. I don't have time to go into some particulars, but let me just give you kind of the summary of the authors of this study. They said the faith that so many of our young people are buying into is what they've called, that is these study writers, moralistic, therapeutic deism. And they define it somewhat this way, colonizing, it is colonizing many historical religious traditions and almost without anyone noticing, converting believers in the old faiths to its alternative religious vision of divinely underwritten personal happiness and interpersonal niceness. Personal happiness and interpersonal niceness. One of the things that's significant about these young people who responded to the study is that they don't see any distinction between biblical Christianity and the other faiths around the world. That should alarm us and should make us ask questions about what we're teaching our children, not only in our homes, but in our churches as well. What are our children getting? Are we focusing so much on the good things that come out of our faith that we are neglecting the roots of that faith, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
died, buried, and resurrected, period. You see, the fact of the matter is there are people all over the, all over the nation, indeed all over the world, who are very good people, some of them better than you and I are. We could talk about a lot of different Gospels today, but the Bible has insisted that this kind of thing will go on forever and ever until Jesus comes back. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. There's only one true Gospel, but there will be and will continue to be many, many false Gospels. Now let's go back to Jesus' words. If Jesus was not saying you can be saved by what you do, what was he saying? He clearly is talking about something very important because he's not only saying this kind of behavior is is vital or it's necessary, but it has to do with your eternal life. Let me take you to Acts chapter 26, verse 20. Acts 26, verse 20. <clears throat> Paul is in front of King Agrippa. I love it when it doesn't matter where Paul is at. doesn't matter who he's talking to. doesn't matter the setting he's in. This guy is a preacher. He's, just, he's a preacher. He can't stop preaching. And so here he is being examined by King Agrippa, and he dives into preaching. Remember the, what Agrippa said? You know, Did you think you could persuade me uh, so quickly to be a Christian? He says this in verse 20. So then King, oh, let me start at 19. So then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. He's talking about God's call in his life. First to those in Damascus, and then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God. Pause. And demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. Now, let me back up a little bit. I should have talked about this when I was talking about our response to the gospel about repentance and faith in Christ. Because repent's not typically a word that we use outside of churches today. Maybe you're not a believer, or maybe you're a young Christian and you're not really sure what that word means, or maybe you're been around for a long time and you assume it means something but it means something else let me just kind of review for you and for me two things two ideas in the and the word repentance one is to change my mind and the other one is to go the other direction so just imagine over here on my far left is sin and over here on my far right is jesus and so when paul says i i want you to turn to god in repentance he's talking about two things Leaving that and going to that, right? So over here's sin. When I repent, I change my mind about my love affair with sin. I, I don't get rid of sin forever. If only, right? If only. But I change my mind about my love affair with it, and now I'm going to follow Jesus and walk away from sin, and I put it this way, I'm going to live the rest of my life on a war footing with sin. I'm not going to make any peace with it. When I recognize I've sinned, I'm going to ask God's forgiveness, and I'm going to pray that he would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help me to continue to fight this good fight of faith. By the way, the times when we conclude that we have conquered sin or that sin, 
look out. You are vulnerable. I, I'm vulnerable. I know the things that I know the things that I am susceptible to, and I am on guard against them. It's the things that I think I'm not susceptible to that trip me up the most. So repent. Turn from sin. Turn and follow Jesus Christ. So I have this war going on with sin forever, following Jesus. So we're talking about repentance here. Paul says, I preach you should repent, turn to God, and demonstrate the repentance by their deeds. John the Baptist said the same thing, uh, Matthew chapter, I think it's 3, verse 8, when he said to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were coming down to be baptized, he said, I mean, there's not a lot of diplomacy in this. He said, you brood of snakes. What are you doing here? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you claim you're willing to repent and turn from sin then there should be some evidence of it. There should be some evidence of it. You know, as I was a boy growing up in the church, and my parents took me to church all the time, we were there three times a week, whether we were healthy, sick, or dead. I think, they'd have, I think my parents would have taken me to church if I was dead. There was one exception. I was about 14 years old, and I did not want to go to church that night, Sunday night. I wanted to stay home and watch I Chaparral. You have to be like 60 to know what that was. I wanted to watch TV. That was the first year we had gotten TV. We were like, uh, you know, the Beverly Hillbillies, I think. No, it wasn't that bad. But I wanted to stay home, and so I faked that I was sick. And I got to stay home, but I didn't get to watch television, so that was kind of a bummer. But I was at church, seemed like, all the time. But you know what the emphasis I got? Now, I'm not saying this is what my pastor was conveying. But what I got was that in order to be a good Christian, you have to not do all these things. There was a, a, a collection of things that was especially important for you to avoid. Now, I, I grew up with an understanding of works righteousness, and I'm sure it was my fault. I knew that Jesus died for our sins, but I didn't know that he had finished a job. I thought I added something to it. It was Jesus plus what I did. But my point there is that the emphasis was on bad things to be avoided as opposed to good things to be done. And the picture that Jesus says here, gives to us here in Matthew chapter 25 is not that. He's not talking about adultery. He's not talking about theft. He's not talking about all of the kinds of things that we are drawn to when we think about this is what it means to be a good Christian. Instead, he's saying, you will be marked as a repentant child of God if you minister to needy people. And this is why I say, this wrecked me a month ago when I preached this. Because I looked at my life, and I have a lot of meetings, and I'm working to plan mission conferences, and I have a lot of meetings, and I'm preparing sermons, and I'm calling people to make arrangements for this, that, or the other thing, and I have a lot of meetings, and I sit down with people in the church, and I talk about their problems, and I do a little bit of counseling, though not much, because my counseling is usually just repent and trust Jesus. Have a nice day. I'm not very good at it. 
But I looked at my life, and both my work hours and my off work hours, I'm not ministering to needy people. And I think it's fair to say that Jesus was placing the emphasis on your brothers and sisters. Isn't that what he said in the passage? Inasmuch as you have done this to your brothers and sisters, you've done it to me. Inasmuch as you have not done this for your brothers and sisters, you've failed to do it to me. But that's the priority. That's not the end. Paul says in Galatians 6.10 that we should do good to all people, especially those who are the household of faith. So there is a priority that you have to one another here in this body at Grace Point Church. There's a priority you have. If you have folks in your church who don't have food, who don't have enough food or enough clothes, or who are sick or in prison uh, or need a place to stay, your first priority, your first obligation are the people sitting around you. But that's not the end of your obligation. Or maybe I should put it this way. That's not the end of God's call on your life. And I don't know what this is going to mean to you. If, there's, if the Spirit of God speaks to you this morning through the Word of God, I don't know what kind of changes might need to take place in your life. I looked around and said, all right, in in our church, uh, we think we have the food and the clothing covered. Uh, We don't have too many people in prison right now. Uh, But we've got sick folks and we've got um, injured folks. I'm going to go start visiting those people. And you might be saying, you're a pastor, don't you do that anyway? Unfortunately, I think this is true. Unfortunately, we have others that kind of take those kinds of responsibilities. Realize this is not a church pastor responsibility. This is a Christian responsibility. And then I looked at my off hours and say, okay, when I'm not on uh, on church time and serving in the work of the ministry in church, what am I doing with my life there? So one of the things that meant for me is we have. In the last year, all the neighbors around us have changed. All the old neighbors moved away. We got new neighbors. All kinds of different sorts of family relationships and structures that we don't understand. Betty and I said, we need to have, we need to get together with them. So we have a picnic planned in a couple weeks. Hoping the other family can come. We got one lined up, hoping the other can Small things, but, but steps. I, I look at what Jesus calls me to, and I want to be about the things that Jesus calls me to. Do you want to be about the things that Jesus calls me to? Calls you to. And one of the temptations is for us to look at the church and say, is our church doing those kinds of things? And if they are, we're off the hook. And here you are, Grace Point Church, you're part of a wonderful community initiative that is really seeking to do these kinds of things that Jesus says to do. But brothers and sisters, that call is not just on your church. That's not just on our church at Keystone. That's on your life. Period. And I wonder if you would take an assessment like I did and say, what are are you spending your money on? What are you spending your time on? What are you spending your energies on? What are you making plans about? Would you conclude that you are about the things that Jesus says distinguish the sheep 
goats. Now, please don't misunderstand me here. I, I don't want anybody leaving and say, wow, Keith thinks that you don't have to believe in Jesus Christ in order to be born again. You do. You do. There is no other way but through Jesus. But you will find, if you make a study of this, you will find from Matthew to Revelation many, many times where it's suddenly pushed to the front that there are all kinds of people who are fake. There are all kinds of people who profess Jesus who don't possess Jesus. You can have your doctrine right and you can make sure that you don't, uh, on those sin lists that you see popping up in the epistles, that you don't do any of those sins on those sin lists. And you can be utterly and completely and eternally lost. Let me close with a couple of verses from James chapter 2. These are ones that you've been a Christian some length of time, I'm sure you've heard, but they are provocative. They are so provocative that Martin Luther wondered whether or not James should even be in the Bible. <clears throat> Beginning of verse 14, James 2:14. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? And again, his deeds here are being shaped by ministering to people in need. Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself is not accompanied, if not accompanied by action, is dead. For us to accurately understand this, we might rephrase it to say, if the faith we claim to have doesn't bear fruit in ministering to people's lives, it's a false faith. In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Brothers and sisters, it really doesn't matter what I say really doesn't matter what your pastor says or your Sunday school teacher. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your parents say. It matters what your Savior says. What is he calling you to do? That an honest assessment of your life will say, I'm not doing right now. Not so that you can be saved, but the fruit of having been saved. Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. He's our only hope. Thanks that he has, through his blood, shed for us, reconciled us to the Father. For some, prospectively reconciled. Perhaps they're not yet at that point where they've come to put their faith in Christ. They've repented of their sin. I pray for those who might be here this morning. Lord, draw them to Jesus. And for all of us who do know Christ, May we not bank on right doctrine, on avoiding certain sins, even a, a heritage that we have. I had a heritage of Christian home, um, ch faithful church attendance involvement. It, none of that means squat apart from Jesus. And the truth is 
that those who know Christ will reveal it by their work. Thanks for that and for the conviction in Jesus' name. Amen.